Section one of a narrative of the expedition to Botany Bay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tabithat. A narrative of the expedition to Botany Bay by Watkin Tench. Introduction. In offering this little tract to the public, it is equally the writer's wish to conduce to their amusement and information. The expedition on which he is engaged has excited much curiosity, and given birth to many speculations respecting the consequences to arise from it. While men continue to think freely, they will judge variously. Some have been sanguine enough to foresee the most beneficial effects to the parent state from the colony we are endeavouring to establish, and some have not been wanting to pronounce the scheme big with folly, impolicy, and ruin. Which of these predictions will be completed I leave to the decision of the public, I cannot, however, dismiss the subject without expressing a hope that the candid and liberal of each opinion, induced by the humane and benevolent intention in which it originated, will unite in waiting the result of a fair trial to an experiment no less new in its design than difficult in its execution. As this publication enters the world with the name of the author, candour will, he trusts, induce its readers to believe that no consideration could weigh with him in an endeavour to mislead them. Facts are related simply as they happened, and when opinions are hazarded, they are such as, he hopes, patient inquiry and deliberate decision will be found to have authorised. For the most part he has spoken from actual observation, and in those places where the relations of others have been unavoidably adopted, he has been careful to search for the truth, and repress that spirit of exaggeration which is almost ever the effect of novelty on ignorance. The nautical part of the work is comprised in as few pages as possible. By the professional part of my readers this will be deemed judicious, and the rest will not, I believe, be dissatisfied at its brevity. I beg leave, however, to say of the astronomical calculations, that they may be depended on with the greatest degree of security, as they were communicated by an officer who was furnished with instruments, and commissioned by the Board of Longitude, to make observations during the voyage and in the southern hemisphere. An unpractised writer is generally anxious to bespeak public attention and to solicit public indulgence. Except on professional subjects, military men are, perhaps, too fearful of critical censure. For the present narrative, no other apology is attempted than the intentions of its author, who has endeavoured not only to satisfy present curiosity, but to point out to future adventurers the favourable as well as adverse circumstances which will attend their settling here. The candid, it is hoped, will overlook the inaccuracies of this imperfect sketch, drawn amidst the complicated duties of the service in which the author is engaged, and make due allowance for the want of opportunity of gaining more extensive information. What Tench, Captain of the Marines, Sydney Cove, Port Jackson, New South Wales, 10th of July, 1788. End of Introduction Chapter 1. From the Embarkation of the Convicts to the Departure of the Ships from England the marines and convicts having been previously embarked in the river at Portsmouth and Plymouth, the whole fleet destined for the expedition rendezvoused at the Mother Bank on the 16th of March, 1787, and remained there until the 13th of May following. In this period, excepting a slight appearance of contagion in one of the transports, the ships were universally healthy, and the prisoners in high spirits. Few complaints or lamentations were to be heard among them, and an ardent wish for the hour of departure seemed generally to prevail. As the reputation, equally with the safety of the officers and soldiers appointed to guard the convicts, 
consisted in maintaining due subordination, an opportunity was taken, immediately on their being embarked, to convince them, in the most pointed terms, that any attempt on their side, either to contest the command or to force their escape, should be punished with instant death. Orders to this effect were given to the sentinels in their presence. Happily, however, for all parties, there occurred not any instance in which there was occasion to have recourse to so desperate a measure— the behaviour of the convicts being in general humble, submissive, and regular. Indeed, I should feel myself wanting injustice to those unfortunate men were I not to bear this public testimony of the sobriety and decency of their conduct. Unpleasant as a state of inactivity and delay for many weeks appeared to us, it was not without its advantages, for by means of it we were enabled to establish necessary regulations among the convicts, and to adopt such a system of defence as left us little to apprehend for our own security, in case a spirit of madness and desperation had hurried them on to attempt our destruction. Among many other troublesome parts of duty which the service we were engaged on required, the inspection of all letters brought to or sent from the ships was not one of the least tiresome and disagreeable. The number and contents of those in the vessel I was embarked in frequently surprised me very much. They varied according to the dispositions of the writers, but their constant language was an apprehension of the impracticality of returning home, the dread of a sickly passage, and the fearful prospect of a distant and barbarous country. But this apparent despondency proceeded in few instances from sentiment. With too many it was doubtless an artifice to awaken compassion and call forth relief the correspondence invariably ending in a petition for money and tobacco. Perhaps a want of the latter, which is considered a great luxury by its admirers among the lower classes of life, might be the more severely felt, from their being debarred in all cases whatever, sickness excepted, the use of spiritous liquors. It may be thought proper for me to mention that during our stay at the Mother Bank, the soldiers and convicts were indiscriminately served with fresh beef. The former, in addition, had the usual quantity of beer allowed in the navy, and were at what is called full allowance for all species of provisions, the latter at two-thirds only. End of chapter 1 Chapter 2 From the Departure to the Arrival of the Fleet at Tenerife Governor Philip, having at length reached Portsmouth, and all things deemed necessary for the expedition being put on board, at daylight on the morning of the 13th the signal to weigh anchor was made in the commanding officer's ship the Sirius. Before six o'clock the whole fleet were under sail, and the weather being fine and wind easterly, proceeded through the needles with a fresh leading breeze. In addition to our little armament, the hyena frigate was ordered to accompany us a certain distance to the westward, by which means our number was increased to twelve sail. His Majesty's ships Sirius, hyena, and supply, three victuallers with two years' stores and provisions on board for the settlement, and six transports with troops and convicts. In the transports were embarked four captains, twelve subalterns, twenty-four sergeants and corporals, eight drummers, and one hundred and sixty private marines, making the whole of the military force, including the major commandant and staff on board the Sirius, to consist of two hundred and twelve persons, of whom two hundred and ten were volunteers. The number of convicts was five hundred and sixty-five men, one hundred and ninety-two women, and eighteen children. The major part of the prisoners were mechanics and husbandmen, selected on purpose by order of government. By ten o'clock we had got clear of the Isle of Wight, at which time, having very little pleasure in conversing with my own thoughts, I strolled down among the convicts to observe their sentiments at this juncture. 
a very few excepted, their countenances indicated a high degree of satisfaction, though in some the pang of being severed, perhaps for ever, from their native land, could not be wholly suppressed. In general, marks of distress were more perceptible among the men than the women, for I recollect to have seen but one of those affected on the occasion. Some natural tears she dropped, but wiped them soon. After this, the accent of sorrow was no longer heard, more genial skies and change of scene banished repining and discontent, and introduced in their stead cheerfulness and acquiescence in a lot now not to be altered. To add to the good disposition which was beginning to manifest itself, on the morning of the twentieth, in consequence of some favourable representations made by the officers commanding detachments, they were hailed and told from the Sirius that in those cases where they judged it proper, they were at liberty to release the convicts from the fetters in which they had been hitherto confined. In complying with these directions, I had great pleasure in being able to extend this humane order to the whole of those under my charge, without a single exception. It is hardly necessary for me to say that the precaution of ironing the convicts at any time reached the men only. In the evening of the same day the hyena left us for England, which afforded an early opportunity of writing to our friends, and easing their apprehensions by a communication of the favourable accounts it was in our power to send them. From this time to the day of our making the land little occurred worthy of remark. I cannot, however, help noticing the propriety of employing the marines on a service which requires activity and exertion at sea, in preference to other troops. Had a regiment recruited since the war been sent out, sea-sickness would have incapacitated half the men from performing the duties immediately and indispensably necessary, whereas the marines, from being accustomed to serve on board ship, accommodated themselves with ease to every exigency, and surmounted every difficulty. At daybreak, on the morning of the 30th of May, we saw the rocks named the Deserters, which lie off the south-east end of Madeira, and found the south-east extremity of the most southerly of them to be in the latitude of 32 degrees 28 minutes north, longitude 16 degrees 17 and a half minutes west of Greenwich. The following day we saw the Salvages, a cluster of rocks which are placed between the Madeiras and Canary Islands, and determined the latitude of the middle of the Great Salvage to be thirty degrees twelve minutes north, and the longitude of its eastern side to be fifteen degrees thirty-nine minutes west. It is no less extraordinary than unpardonable that in some very modern charts of the Atlantic, published in London, the Salvages are totally omitted." We made the island of Tenerife on the 3rd of June, and in the evening anchored in the road of Santa Cruz, after an excellent passage of three weeks from the day we left England. End of chapter 2 Chapter 3 From the fleet's arrival at Tenerife to its departure for Rio de Janeiro in the Brazils There is little to please a traveller at Tenerife. He has heard wonders of its celebrated peak, but he may remain for weeks together at the town of Santa Cruz without having a glimpse of it, and when its cloud-topped head emerges the chance is he feels disappointed, for from the point of view in which he sees it the neighbouring mountains lessen its effect very considerably. Excepting the peak, the eye receives little pleasure from the general face of the country which is sterile and uninviting to the last degree. The town, however, from its cheerful white appearance, contrasted with the dreary brownness of the background, makes not an unpleasing coup d'oeil. It is neither irregular in its plan nor despicable in its style of building, and the churches and religious houses are numerous, sumptuous, and highly ornamented. 
The morning of our arrival, as many officers as could be spared from the different ships, were introduced to the Marquis de Branquifort, governor of the Canary Islands, whose reception was highly flattering and polite. His Excellency is a Sicilian by birth, and is most deservedly popular in his government. He prefers residing at Tenerife for the conveniency of frequent communications with Europe to the Grand Canary, which is properly the seat of power, and though not long fixed here, has already found means to establish a manufactory in cotton, silk, and thread under excellent regulations, which employs more than sixty persons, and is of infinite service to the common people. During our short stay we had every day some fresh proof of His Excellency's esteem and attention, and had the honour of dining with him, in a style of equal elegance and splendour. At this entertainment the profusion of ices which appeared in the dessert was surprising, considering that we were enjoying them under a sun nearly vertical. But it seems the caverns of the peak, very far below its summit, afford at all seasons ice in abundance. The restless importunity of the beggars and the immodesty of the lowest class of women are highly disgusting. From the number of his countrymen to be found, an Englishman is at no loss for society. In the mercantile houses established here, it is from gentlemen of this description that any information is derived, for the taciturnity of the Spaniards is not to be overcome in a short acquaintance, especially by Englishmen, whose reserve falls little short of their own. The inland country is described as fertile and highly romantic, and the environs of the small town of Laguza mentioned as particularly pleasant. Some of our officers who made an excursion to it confirmed the account amply. It should seem that the power of the church, which has been so long on the decline in Europe, is at length beginning to be shaken in the colonies of the Catholic powers. Some recent instances which have taken place at Tenerife evince it very fully. Were not a stranger, however, to be apprised of this, he would hardly draw the conclusion from his own observations. The bishop of these islands, which conjunctively form a sea, resides on the Grand Canary. He is represented as a man in years and of a character as amiable as exalted, extremely beloved both by foreigners and those of his own church. The bishopric is valued at ten thousand pounds per annum, the government at somewhat less than two. In spite of every precaution, while we lay at anchor in the road, a convict had the address one night to secrete himself on the deck when the rest were turned below, and after remaining quiet for some hours let himself down over the bow of the ship, and floated to a boat that lay astern, into which he got, and cutting her adrift suffered himself to be carried away by the current, until at a sufficient distance to be out of hearing, when he rowed off. This elopement was not discovered until some hours after, when a search being made, and boats sent to the different parts of the island, he was discovered in a small cove, to which he had fled for refuge. On being questioned, it appeared he had endeavoured to get himself received on board a Dutch East Indiaman in the road, but being rejected there, he resolved on crossing over to the Grand Canary, which is at the distance of ten leagues, and when detected was recruiting his strength in order to make the attempt. At the same time that the boats of the fleet were sent on this pursuit, information was given to the Spanish governor of what had happened, who immediately detached parties every way in order to apprehend the delinquent. Having remained a week at Tenerife, and in that time completed our stock of water, and taken on board wine, etc., early on the morning of the 10th of June we weighed anchor, and stood out to sea with a light easterly breeze. The shortness of our stay, and the consequent hurry, prevented our increasing much any previous knowledge we might have had of the place. 
For the information of those who may follow us on this service, it may not, however, be amiss to state the little that will be found of use to them. The markets afford fresh meat, though it is neither plentiful nor good. Fish is scarce, but poultry may be procured in almost any quantity, at as cheap a rate as in the English seaports. Vegetables do not abound except pumpkins and onions, of which I advise all ships to lay in a large stock. Milk-goats are bought for a trifle and easily procured. Grapes cannot be scarce in their season, but when we were there, except figs and excellent mulberries, no fruit was to be procured. Dry wines, as the merchants term them, are sold from ten to fifteen pounds a pipe. For the latter price, the very best, called the London Particular, may be bought. Sweet wines are considerably dearer. Brandy is also a cheap article. I would not advise the voyager to depend on this place for either his hogs or sheep, and he will do well to supply himself with dollars before he quits England to expend in the different ports he may happen to touch at. Should he, however, have neglected this precaution, let him remember, when he discounts bills or exchanges English money here, not to receive his returns in quarter dollars, which will be tendered to him, but altogether in whole ones, as he will find the latter turned to better account than the former, both at Rio de Janeiro and the Cape of Good Hope. The latitude of the town of Santa Cruz is twenty-eight degrees twenty-seven and a half minutes north, the longitude is sixteen degrees seventeen and a half minutes west of Greenwich. End of chapter three. End of section one.